Um, Elizabeth's home, Mary has just arrived, and as soon as Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, the baby in utero, uh, in the womb, jumps. And she, uh, she takes that as a sign that her child is jumping for joy at the coming of, of the baby that Mary carries. And then they greet each other. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown his strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. I, I won't say that this episode of the Christmas story has often been neglected, but it does not get as much attention as the more familiar scenes. Uh, the, the journey of Joseph and Mary, the arrival in Bethlehem and finding no room, the nativity around the stable, and so on. But this, this scene does enfold in an atmosphere of, of intimate warmth as these two women connect. Uh, they're, they're relatives, and both of them have received a miracle. Both have been surprised by unexpected pregnancies. Now, we have no details of the three months of Mary's visit with Elizabeth. All we have is their greetings to each other. And each greeting is an eruption of joy and wonder. When Elizabeth addresses Mary, uh, she hints at the, the mystery that Mary carries in her womb. She says, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Uh, she recognizes that, that Mary's child is her Lord. And, and already there's a perception of the spiritual gravity of, of this moment. Mary's response is nothing less than an inspired psalm. It's like one of those, those psalms from the Hebrew scriptures, psalm of praise and, and rejoicing in God. Um, when you read this, you know that you've caught the mood of the story if you find yourself smiling. You know what I mean? It's like that 
that warms my physics spectrum. I'm going to zero in on one particular line that Mary sings. It's the second half of verse 51 where she says, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. My first impression of this is that it's prophetic, that Mary is celebrating a future as if it were already present. God is already scattering uh, the, those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. This will happen through Jesus' ministry, but he's not even born yet. So, so there's a prophetic sense here. Uh, and it's a prophecy of one of the social upheavals that will take place through Christ. My next impression is that the world will be better off for it when the plans of narcissistic leaders are foiled. The third impression is that Mary is traveling familiar territory. Uh, last week, I quoted two places where uh, Mary is treasuring things in her heart and pondering them. So the, the thoughts of the heart, things that go on within, um, is what's happening here. And Mary's life will extend into the realm of inner thoughts. And so will the ministry of Jesus. Okay, now I want to jump from this lovely encounter to the temple. And I mentioned Simeon last week, the old guy who uh, was filled with God's spirit and directed into the temple. When he saw the baby Jesus, he took the baby in his arms and prayed over him. And in this story, birth and death are featured. Uh, the old man says, now you can let me depart in peace, O Lord. Uh, a birth is celebrated, uh, death is anticipated, and the one is connected to the other. A peaceful death is possible because of the divine birth. Simeon also has special information just for Mary. He says to her, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and the sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Okay, again, he comes back to the thoughts of, of the heart. And Simeon's prediction is that Jesus will be a sign. A sign does not make things happen. Rather, it points to things. And, and Jesus is going to be a sign. Okay, I'm just going to um, go on a tangent for just a little while. Jesus is God's touchstone. Do you know what a touchstone is? Does it sound familiar? We kind of have an idea. A touchstone is used to determine the quality of a metal. Is this gold or not? You use the touchstone to find out. Jesus is God's touchstone. When Jesus came, he said, I haven't come to judge anyone. And yet he says, I've come for judgment. So he's, he's saying, I'm not going to come. I haven't come to, to act as a judge. 
But Jesus himself is God's touchstone, and people are judged for how they respond to him. If they reject him, if they make him an enemy, um, there's, there's one destiny for them. If they embrace him, if they follow him, believe on him, that's another destiny. But he's, he's the touchstone, and, and the river flows then two streams from there. Uh, he talks about uh, separating sheep from the goats. And that just happens by your response to Jesus. Okay, let's say I'm in a museum and I'm looking at a painting by Pablo Picasso. Uh, let's say it's uh, Guernica. And I stand there and after a while I say, well, now my five-year-old grandma the grandfather, or my five-year-old grandson, could paint better than that. <laughs> I mean, this, this is a known masterpiece. The whole art world you know, recognizes it. I'm saying something more about myself than I am the painting. I'm saying, well, I'm kind of ignorant and don't really know art. And, and uh, uh, how about you? So, um, <laughs> So uh, with Jesus, it's like, how do I respond to him? What do I see in him? Do I make the discovery? He's a sign that many will oppose. And, and the opposers will fall, and followers will rise. He says, this is a sign. You know, that he's for the, the fall and rise of many in Israel. So Simeon is onto something here. Um, as he prophesies over Jesus. Um, by his very presence, he is going to expose what was in the hearts of many. He just had to show up. <clears throat> now, I've taken that last line for our meditation today, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There are moments in Luke's Gospel where we observe this happening. Once when Jesus perceived the thoughts of the scribes and Pharisees in chapter five. In fact, Luke says that Jesus answered them. Now they're only thinking these thoughts. They didn't say them, but when Jesus spoke, he answered it. Jesus answered their thoughts. That's spooky. I mean, you know, um, you're transparent before Jesus, whether you like it or not. He sees right through you. Um, and I, I just, I, I just cringe at the idea of him showing up and looking at me and saying, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> All right, no, Lord. Um, wait, 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 I can change, I can change. Uh, <laughs> you know, gosh, I, I act just like my grandson. Um, and he, he asks them, why do you question in your heart? He knows the questions they're asking in their heart. Another time when the scribes and Pharisees were looking for a reason to reject him, we're told, but he knew their thoughts. And they're just thinking these things, or having little quiet discussions among themselves, but he knew their thoughts, and he, he reveals them. And again, 
when they pestered him for a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, told them no sign would be given. Another time it was the disciples having an argument with each other over who was the greatest. Now they were doing this out of earshot. I'm sure they didn't want Jesus to hear them having this discussion. I, I sat in a staff meeting one time where there were, uh, well, they happened to be Calvary Chapel pastors from around, around Southern California. And uh, two of them were having a, an argument with each other. One of them was saying, well, my church is the biggest of the churches in our affiliation. The other one was saying, well, yeah, mine has more money. And it just reminds me of the disciples. Uh, wow. Yeah, it just reminded me of the disciples. Who's the greatest? Well, you know. And it says, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and in front of them said, look, no one's great unless um, you really are servant to this child. You really care for this person. This, this is the great one, and you're the servant. Uh, but he, he knows what what they're talking about. But he knows what's in their heart, too. The reasoning, the thinking that's going on. Uh, and one time Jesus told the crowds, and especially his critics, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. So the thoughts of many hearts are going to be revealed. Jesus, Jesus comes to make us aware of our thoughts and, and to reveal what's, what's in our hearts. And we need this because sometimes we just don't know ourselves. Have you ever asked yourself, why did I just say that? <laughs> I have many, many, many times and, um, and often when talking to you, you know, so I'll just blurt something out and um, embarrass myself. And, I don't know why I said that. Um, what, what was my motive there? I have a book written by a Benedictine nun entitled Thoughts Matter. Sister Mary Margaret tells a story regarding Abba Anthony. <coughs> Anthony is considered the very first monk and the father of monasticism. And one, one day he was, he came from a wealthy family, he was part of a large estate that, that he had ownership in. And he came to a meeting like this, and he heard the story of the rich young man who came and asked Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, go and sell everything and follow me. And Anthony, heard God say that to himself. And so he renounced everything in his worldly life, his home, his wealth, his family, and he went into the desert. And he went into the desert so that he could know God better, so that he could live closer to God. But in the desert, he found that his thoughts followed him there. He was thinking about home and wealth and, and gaining popularity and, and all the vainglory thoughts 
that he had when he was in the city. And it occurred to him, I've renounced everything, but I need a second renunciation. I need to renounce my thoughts. And Sister Mary Margaret says, he realized that his thoughts mattered and that they had to be taken seriously because if he did not take them seriously, he could not pray. He began to train himself to notice his thoughts, laying them out rather than resisting them. He learned to redirect his thoughts either by rethinking them or by placing a prayer alongside the thought. That's an idea. I'm going to pray this thought. And, and what happens to it then? Later she explains, to know our thoughts is an essential step in redirecting our heart to God in prayer. I have to know my thoughts so I can redirect my heart to God and not to those thoughts so that I can, I can really pray. You know, the, the first thing that has to happen in prayer is you have to have a sense of God, a, a sense of his presence, um, but a sense that he's actually listening to you, he actually hears you. If you don't have that, you're wasting your breath. I mean, who are you talking to if not to God? And if you're going to talk to him, he has to be right there, doesn't he? I mean, he has to, to be within earshot. Father Romuald one time said, he, he said something important to me because my mind constantly pulls the carpet up from underneath me. It, it, it ridicules me. It harasses me. It tells me what a loser I am, how worthless I am. And I had shared some of this with Romuald. And uh, he, he said, well, I'm surprised that not that you have negative thoughts, but that you would identify with them. And they said, I am not my thoughts. I am not my feelings. Well, sometimes it's, it's easy to lose yourself in your thoughts, to think that your thoughts are you. What I'm thinking right now, this is me. But it's, it's an important lesson not to let our thoughts define us. But still, our thoughts matter. True thoughts assist us. Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, one of my favorites, if you notice beauty, whatever is lovely, whatever commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And then he says, watch us and, and, and do what we do. Uh, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Think about these things and the peace of God is yours and the God of peace is with you. Thoughts that are untrue can trip us up, can mislead us and even ruin us. And so Paul says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Fearful thoughts, anxious thoughts, toxic, shameful thoughts can twist our minds. 
uh, convince us that we're worthless, irredeemable, hopeless, can, can undermine anything that we would attempt in God's name. I'm going to share a few of my thoughts about thoughts. Now, I don't expect you to remember this list. Uh, I'll have it published on our blog site by tomorrow, hopefully. Um, so since you're not going to remember all this, see if you can just feel what I say next. Thoughts are not insignificant. They deserve our concern. Our unconscious thoughts run our lives. The things that, that we do by habit, the things that come to us automatically, these are unconscious thoughts and they run our lives. They are either going to bring us closer to God or carry us away. Thoughts are not inert. They are dynamic. They are a mental energy or mental force. We do not always know our own thoughts. We get lost in them rather than look at them. I'm in a thought. And not saying to myself, I'm having a thought right now. I'm unaware of having a thought right now because I'm in the thought. Awareness is when I take a step back and ask myself, what was I just thinking? What am I thinking? Then when I look at it, I'm not in it. And we need this, this one step removed from our thoughts. Sometimes another person will make us aware of our thoughts. I'm not talking about your mom saying, what were you thinking? Uh, <laughs> though that can help. Um, but we can learn to make ourselves aware of our thoughts. When our thoughts are revealed, we are responsible to own them. And I don't mean identify with them, but own the fact, yep, that was my thought, and that's a thought I have often. We can discern our thoughts when we're aware of them, and then choose to either keep the thought or dismiss it. To either do something with it or let it fade away. And we can choose to think new thoughts. Busy, shallow thoughts can distract us from our deeper thoughts. We all have a depth in us, a depth that longs for God, a depth that recognizes beauty, a depth that responds to music uh, and the laughter of a child, a depth that could bring us closer to God if we stayed there, if we went there and stayed there more often. That's the secret garden of the soul. And it's a place to ruminate, to contemplate. But our busy, shallow lives don't allow us much opportunity for that. We don't have to fight a horrific battle in our mind. Sister Mary Margaret again said, Thoughts come and go. Unaccompanied thoughts pass quickly. Oh, that's great to know. 
If a thought comes and you don't do anything with it, you don't you don't hang on to it, you don't pursue it, you just sort of you just ignore it. It goes away by itself. Thoughts are always entering and exiting our minds. If the thought has an energy to it, it's more likely to linger longer. And if you notice that, if you notice, oh, this thought has some energy, and I don't want to be thinking this thought right now. If you turn to another thought, it might be in the background for the love that it goes away. There's an arc to it. It's like you start thinking, oh, you know, this thought has power, this thought has power. But eventually, it just, it does this. Okay. <laughs> um, our thoughts are a key issue in our spiritual development. Don't think that the thoughts don't matter. Well, look, you know, if I'm having bad thoughts, the only person I'm harming is myself. Well, you could be doing great harm to yourself. And we really don't know how thoughts travel. Jesus reveals our thoughts to renovate our minds, renovate our spirits. A, pu a purification of our thoughts improves our vision of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God throws us a challenge to think higher thoughts. Isaiah says, or God through Isaiah says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says to the wicked person, you're doing wrong. And to the unrighteous person, he says, you are thinking wrong. Your thoughts are wrong. And these go, to, go together. Our, our ways and our thoughts are connected. Our thoughts can become our way of responding, of reacting, of overreacting, of sinking, or rising into anger, or however it goes. It's possible to transcend thought, to enter the mystery of the kingdom of God, where there is just the sheer experience of the moment and that you are with that in awareness, thoughtless awareness. Okay, I'm going to make a turn now and come at this from another way. Um, this occurred to me this past week, reading in Luke's Gospel. Uh, in chapter 12, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that got to me. I ask myself, how can I know where my heart is? 
And the questions I asked to help answer that question were, what thoughts come to me most often? I mean, besides winning the lottery. I've read up on stories of one lotteries in the past, and rather than solving anything, I remember this one man spoiled his granddaughter who died in the sports car he bought for her with his great wealth. Um, I mean, his, his life went to ruin. However, what thoughts do I use to console myself? These are my thumb-sucking thoughts. <laughs> you know what I mean? say, um, I've got my, the, the silk binding on my blankie, and I've got my thumb, and I just, you know, everything's all right now. And I soothe myself. What thoughts do I use? story of twin brothers Esau and Jacob uh, and we're told uh, that their mother told Jacob behold your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning on killing you Esau was so mad at his brother for what his brother the ways, two ways that his brother had wronged him that the only way he could bring down the volume of his anger was to think, I'm going to kill him. Dad will die soon. Won't be, you know, he's not going to last that much longer. And when he goes, that's it. I'm killing Jacob. What thoughts do I use to console myself when someone cuts me off on the freeway? You know, do I immediately go to that thought, I wish I had a laser Gun a pen in front of my car, and people like that zap, and it's just dust. <laughs> that I drive through. Um, I've never thought that. <laughs> what thoughts do I use to entertain myself when I'm bored or whatever? What thoughts give me hope? What thoughts trouble me? If I know what thoughts trouble me, that will help me know where my heart is. Because it will show me where my treasure is. Oh no, I might lose this. What do I think would make me happy? If it's not God, if it's not Jesus, if it's not heaven, then maybe my treasures aren't in heaven, and maybe my heart's not there either. Look, I have to say that these questions really troubled me when I began to ask them of myself. What am I thinking right at this moment? That's a good one to carry around in your pocket. Um, my thoughts swirl around whatever it is I treasure. I've been trying to imagine what it would be like to have Jesus on my mind all day. One whole day that he's in the forefront 
of my thoughts. And if not, he's still right there. You know, behind that first active thought I have to do say to do my job well. If I had Jesus on my mind all day, I think I'd be more aware of the ways that he blesses me than of the ways that other people annoy me. What would it be like to love Jesus so much that I was enthralled with him? I mean, in that sense, be in love with Jesus, because you know how it is when you're in love with someone, and you find that as you're talking on the phone, you've written their name a hundred times on a sheet of paper, um, because you love their name, because you love them. You think about texting them, or emailing them, or calling them. What if he was always so present that my thoughts automatically went back to him. I imagine that if I could be mindful of Jesus all day for even one day, that would be the best Christmas gift ever. Even better than an orange. <laughs> my Christmas wish, my prayer, is that each of us will have a day like that, where he has our thoughts, where we don't have to be worried about anyone seeing our thoughts, perceiving our thoughts, knowing our thoughts, because Jesus is our preoccupation, our obsession, our joy and delight, one whole day. Would you stand with me, please? I want to say something corny, like, what's on your mind? Uh, but I won't. <laughs> because I don't say corny things, right? I love you. I hope that you have a wonderful Christmas. Um, may God make it so that you would know that day is all about Jesus and his love for you. And he came for you. That he embraces you. That he holds you so close to his heart that your attempts to beg for forgiveness are muffled by his sheer presence. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit.